This is your host, Tia. This is your host, Tia. Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Top 10. Why? Good morning and welcome back to another awesome episode of the Top 10 by Geek Vibe Nation. As always, I'm your host, Tia Baby, and today I have a very uh, exciting but also sleepy co-host with me, Brittany. How are you doing? <laughs> I, I, I'm amazing. Except, you know how I always talk about the cats? I always talk about how the cats are always trying to like love on me on one of these things. Well, I'm in a different room today, and I can literally hear one of them, like, sticking his entire arm underneath the uh, door and just shaking it, like something out of, uh, what's that movie where it's like, here's Johnny? It's like oh, something out of that. Yeah, you, exactly. Um, you need to have your own show where it's just uh, Britney's Kitty Corner, <laughs> which now oh, that I'm I, saying that oddly sounds like a strip club. <laughs> You know what? I'm okay with both. I'm okay with both of them. Brittany, thank you for joining me this early in the morning. We are doing the top 10 best Netflix villains. So this is any original Netflix series and the villains that we just love to hate because they're so good at it. And I was telling Brittany earlier that we probably are going to have a bit of an overlap here, but that's all right. I got a lot of great picks that, you know, I'm hoping that people will agree with us because you can't have a show with a good hero and a good, good guy if you don't have a great villain to kind of bounce off of him. But before we go any further into this, I wanted to ask you, Brittany, speaking about villains, did you happen to see the second trailer for the Joker movie? Oh, man, Tia's putting me on the spot because <laughs> she knows I was supposed to watch it. Uh, I haven't got to I'll watch it yet. I, but I did watch a really cool um, – someone had made a animated poster for it, like a claymation of, like, where he's frowning and covers his face, and when he, like, moves his, like, hands, he's suddenly the Joker – I'm very excited. Tia knows how obsessed I am right now because she's been obsessed too. And it's like for anybody that doesn't know, you know, me and Tia are, you know, we we besties, but we live about how many states away? I think it's like a straight like 28, 24-hour drive to New York between Arkansas. And it's like whenever I get to visit, we'll actually be right when the Joker is coming out. And we are pumped. Well, the thing is, is that, first of all, I've been a fan of Joaquin Phoenix's for a very long time, ever since he portrayed Johnny Cash in Walk the Line, some however many years ago that was. He's a brilliant actor. He is a brilliant actor. So, and everyone knows how utterly skeptical I was of Heath Ledger playing the Joker. And that came as someone who was and still is a Heath Ledger fan. Obviously, 
his Joker completely blew me away. But when they announced Joaquin Phoenix as the Joker, there was none of that skepticism or anything. As soon as I said, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's the great guy to get for this role. He can do it right. And it just premiered at the Venice um, Film Festival and apparently got like a seven or eight minute standing ovation. So, I mean, yeah, it is, it's definitely coming for the Oscars. Um, There's these really funny memes. I told you, Brittany, since you didn't watch the second trailer, but it's okay, that (laughs) in in the second trailer, there's a line where Arthur Fleck, who, you know, becomes the Joker, and he's going to be on this talk show, and he's in the whole Joker getup, and he tells Robert Nero's character, who is the host of this show, he goes, when you bring me out on stage, can you address me as Joker? So there's all these uh, memes where it's like Joaquin Phoenix going, when you bring me out for my Oscar, can you address me as Joker? <laughs> that. I was going to say, uh, I was actually on uh, Reddit this morning before I promptly fell back asleep, but um, (laughs) I I was looking and Reddit was showing all, like, the incoming ratings and how incredible it was, but I actually learned that, you know, as much as everybody's wanting watching Phoenix to get his Oscar, apparently he very much hates the idea of Oscars, at least that's what I heard, where he probably would not show up if he got it. But people are like, but isn't that better to be so good that you got an Oscar, but you didn't show up? Which I think is a very Marlo Brando. I can't pronounce. But Marlon Brando. Type, yes. It's like, it's not a very much that type of situation. I'm like, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. Well, Joaquin Phoenix just seems to me like the type of actor that he's doing this all for the art and probably finds the whole um, idea of, like, the Oscars history. Because, you know, we've seen throughout the years movies win Oscars that really don't deserve it. You know, it's all just kind of a um, – I'll say one thing before we move into the actual list. It's very much like uh, – and I know you're probably not going to know what I'm talking about, Brittany, but you know, do you know who the Sex Pistols are? Yes. Okay. So um, some on years ago, the Sex Pistols were going to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and the lead singer, uh, Johnny Urine, wrote them back going, fuck off, pretty much, because, <laughs> he, you know, <laughs> so it, it's very much like that. But, um, yeah, so I guess we should probably move on, go into the actual list. I just wanted to talk about the Joker really quick just because, uh, yeah, I – I'm super excited to see that, and as you said, it comes around the same time that you'll be here, so we'll most likely, I feel like seeing a matinee will probably be the best bet, but before we get into the list, uh, for anyone who is listening, we have two giveaways that we're going to be featuring on this show today, and the first one uh, that you need to look out for is our Avengers giveaway, and the code word is Avengers Assemble, which was the coolest part in that freaking movie of all time. But anyway, Brittany, um, I'm actually going to go first this time. I don't often go first on lists, but I'm doing it that way. You can get the number one spot um, just because that's oh, usually how girl. it works. That's usually how it works when there's only, say, two of us. So 
Um, all right. My number 10 is, and you're not going to really know what I'm talking about, Brittany. That's okay. I'll explain to you. Um, <laughs> I'm going to do the character Papa from the first season of Stranger Things. Now, Papa is the, as you can imagine, is this evil doctor who is the one who pretty much um, did all of the experience, well, experiments on Eleven that gave her her powers. He is the one who had complete and utter control over her, the one who, you know, put her, and anyone who's listening will know what I'm talking about, her real mother had tried to look for her because Eleven was taken from birth uh, to be an experiment for this evil laboratory organization run by the character known as Papa. Um, and then when the mother tried to look into it, they pretty much uh, lobotomized her by way of extreme oh. electrotherapy. So, and just, Eleven then was raised in a lab in a room forced to do all of these things and obviously the only father figure up until knowing Jim Hopper was this Papa guy and some people may try and argue that obviously the monsters are the villains in Stranger Things but if you think about it Papa was the reason why Eleven and all those that came before her were experimented on. And the whole reason that he wanted it was to try to spy on, say, Russian intelligence. And by ways of doing that, they created a rift between our world and the world that all the monsters come from. So I'm going to say that if it wasn't for this guy, we would never have any of those problems to begin with. So Papa from Stranger Things, to me, is a pretty good way to start off this list. He was only in the first season, so he's not, say, as bad as the others who are going to pop up on this list, but I thought that he was a good catalyst to start everything off on because, again, if it wasn't for him, we would never have things like the Demogorgon and Mind Slayer and all of that that, came afterwards in Stranger Things. So that's going to be my number 10. I know, Brittany, that you don't really watch Stranger Things that often, but based on what I said or if you knew anything about the character Papa, which, you know, is in on itself very uh, wrong that poor Eleven was forced to call a man that pretty much kidnapped her, Papa. Ooh, that... that um... Tia knows it's like I love villains they're my favorite part of any show or movie because sometimes the good guys just get boring which is kind of in a way you know you love Jim Hopper because he's not just goody goody he's kind of he's kind of rough but uh no I think that definitely fits the list because one you have a guy that goes by Papa that's such a villain thing such a villain thing to go by like an unassuming name like when you think in Lilo and Stitch at first when you thought he was the villain but Mr. Bubbles but I I love Papa but I I haven't actually got to see him but anything that has to do with Eleven being what she is or you know the traumatic past she's gone through definitely fits the bill for me for a good villain but uh is it one of those things that you would have liked to see him in more in the series, or do you think he ended at a good spot in the series? 
I think he was good for what he was in the first season. And the thing is, is that the character kind you know, you talk about a girl who can literally control things with her mind. And there's even a scene in the first season that's a bit of a flashback where she's still in the lab and she tries to essentially escape. And these two orderlies try to get her. And she's literally able to snap their necks with her mind, right? Um, and so you think a girl, you think a girl who's that powerful can get away from the grasp of Papa. But even though she just snapped these two dudes' necks with her mind, he comes in and she immediately becomes, you know, the scared little girl, which she is. She's a little girl. And even in the second season, even though he's dead by this point. Um, her, you know, quote-unquote sister, uh, number eight, is able to, you know, make you see things that you fear the most. And in order to kind of almost get to control her, uh, Eleven sees an image of Papa. And even though we've seen Eleven do so many powerful things, the image of this man still is able to kind of bring her down to her knees. That sounds utterly terrifying, where you know that they have such a traumatic past, and it was just messed up of eight for doing that in the first place, but it does go to show it's a good uh, shower of, like, a good villain whenever, even when they're gone, they still continue to haunt them. It's like a very life-after-death type of situation. Well, you um, know, and and I was going to say really quick is that, A, I mean, eight was a bit of a degenerate. She ran around with a group of other people robbing uh, shit and, you know, killing people who had wronged her. So, you know, but, um, you know, and I think that Eleven's past with Popper is, I mean, not Popper, Eleven's past with Papa is why it was so significant for her to have this new relationship with Popper because, the only person who she had known in a father figure capacity was this guy, Papa, who was so sad to her. And then you have Jim Hopper, who is just kind of trying to give her everything that a little girl should have had the whole time. Can we talk about David Harbour for a second? He is like the number one part of Stranger Things, which I know other people will disagree. But but David Harbour himself, I went from, oh, the Black Widow movie, and I'm sure it's good, but is it a little too late? You know, is it coming, you know, you know where we don't really need it? And in the moment they're like, oh, he's going to be in it, and he plays a big old Russian. I was like, I'm in. I'm totally in. <laughs> Well, the hilarious thing is that in the third, first of all, if you look back to the first season, it really does kind of all start with the Russians because it was just in the middle of like, you know, um, like right out of the Cold War and everything. And they, they were pretty much using this program to try to spy on Russian intelligence. And then in the third season, we have a very big presence of the Russian army and Jim, who I guess, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen season three of Stranger Things, we are to assume that Jim died um, heroically and valiantly. But then in the post credit scene for season three, we are in a Russian prison where uh, one Russian goes to open up a, what looks like a prison cell. 
But the other guy goes, no, leave the American. And you're like, who's the American, right? It, it has to be right. offered. But the, the irony to go from that and that David Harbour now is playing a Russian um, is just hilarious. And especially the fact that his name is Alexei, because, again, anyone who's watched season three of Stranger Things absolutely fell in love with the character Alexei. Which uh, Tia laughed at me because I had not heard the word Alexi or the name Alexi. So I was like, Alexi? And she was like, Brittany. No, no bad Brittany. (laughs) I mean, that's what I say pretty much all the time. But um, moving on from that, we should truck along with the list. So I did my number 10, and Brittany, it is your time for the number nine. I was going to say, let's continue with the trend of Russians. I'm going to go with uh, the Demi Twins from Altered Carbon. Oh, that's and, good. I know. And I was like, oh, they've got to be, you know, later on in the list because, you know, they didn't have a long run. But for anybody that's watched Altered Carbon or not seen it, you know, in Altered Carbon, people have sleeves. And that is the body that they're currently embodying, that if they pass on, you know, they can get a new sleeve, which is a, a new flesh prison, but a new body. And, um, you know, they transfer their mind basically into it. But with the Demi twins, which I, they're called Demi 1 and Demi 2, right? I'm trying to remember mm-hmm. if I remember that correctly. But apparently uh, you can make a copy of your brain, which, you know, it's implanted in the back of your neck, which I'm trying to remember what it was exactly called. But um, this guy had split it. He had doubled it and did two different sleeves. But in the process, he made himself go a little mad from it. And he doesn't play an overly huge part, but he is a good antagonist for the first part of season one where uh, messing with uh, Takeshi, but, um, you know, one of the twins dies. And to them, even though they're the same person, they consider themselves brothers. They're twins. Well, so Demi ends up getting Takeshi and ends up putting him in this, uh, I'm trying to think of the word for it. Basically, like a virtual reality yes. kind of thing. Yes, and but the thing is, is with all their minds being linked into the back of their neck, whenever they're in this virtual reality where he has control because he's having these scientists basically put him under, which they're so casual about it. They're like, oh, can we finish this up in like the next 10 minutes? Because most people break. It's an interrogation technique because in this virtual reality with them having it fully controlled, he can hurt Takeshi. He can make any situation happen to him. Like he lights him on fire and to Takeshi, he's like, I'm on fire. My flesh is literally cooking. I can smell it. I can sense that to him, it's completely real. And it's a way of him breaking him, but he's still just so upset that, Oh, you killed my twin, even though they're the same person. And, Technically, he's still alive, so it really shouldn't matter. But he's such a good place in it because he's so crazy and he's very Russian. So I was like, we got to continue this uh, this um, situation of Russians because even though he's not in it for so long, 
I mean, I like, I still, when I think of Alter Carbon, I think of the scene of him literally lighting him on fire or when he's like, oh, you know, I'm going to do this with the face of my brother. And he makes a virtual reality take on the face of his quote unquote twin. So it's very, very, um, a mind screw. I actually love this. I can't believe I didn't think of this, but I love the Demi twins from Alter Carbon. First of all, you have two great actors playing the twins, Tom O'Pennicott and Michael Eklund, who I guess you would both, so you would know Tom O'Pennicott probably best from uh, Battleship Galactica and Supernatural, and Michael Eklund from Winona Earth, and probably any other small role, because the man has been in pretty much everything sci-fi, if you look at his actual filmography. But I love the uh because it starts everything um you know Takeshi Kovach is not in his original sleeve he's in a new sleeve who you end up finding out is a uh sleeve for uh Lieutenant Ortega's um you know fiance so even though Takeshi has nothing to do with like his sleeves um sin pretty much uh Dimmy believes that this is the other guy and obviously goes after him and thus loses his life. And I love how they explain that it's they're not actual brothers. They're not two different people. He just split himself into two different minds, and they've been doing it for, I think, about the past 200 years, they pretty much say. So, wild. I mean, it's, right, and it's, it's gotten them insane. And one of my favorite episodes is honestly when Takeshi is in that virtual um, reality type thing and how you go from, say, Demi 2, who was Michael Eklund, and him saying that he's going to uh, take the face of his brother, Demi 1, who's Tom O'Penniket, in order to uh, properly torture Takeshi. I mean, that was a great episode because they explained during that, that even though it's virtual reality and you're not really, say, dying in it, it feels completely real. So for him, any time he was tortured, like set on fire and anything else that happened to him, that felt completely real. And then he pretty much regenerizes for it to happen again to him. And even though they were minor characters, they still um, were pretty effing crazy um, and I don't know if you remember, but the second Demi, I believe, uh, survived in order to take both the bodies of that one uh, bad guy who, remember Ortega's, like, grandmother, like, takes his sleeve. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so not only does he get into that sleeve, but then a little later on down the line, he gets into the sleeve that was Takeshi's, I believe, original sleeve in order to fight against him in, like, a cage match. So, I mean, the Demi, um, even though we, they weren't the biggest villain in Alter Carbon, were around enough in order to make a, in order to be a real pain in Takeshi's ass. I'm going to say it's very much like a thorn in their side. Like, you, you, every time you move, you're feeling the ache where you're like, can you just, like, go away for five seconds, please? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think that they're great villains um, just because it was almost so fun to see them throughout the, the first season. And 
it kind of sucks that they're not around anymore because it would be interesting to see how they would be in, say, the second season. But I think that both Tom O'Pennicott and Michael Eklund did a fantastic job as these two characters. And it's almost sad that we never got to see them to never got to see them together. It, ironically enough, I'm staring at the picture I took with Tom O'Pennicott at the Supernatural. <laughs> Oh, he's a fantastic actor. Um, both of them are, and I wish that we could see Tomo in a bit more. I think he just got cast for something, but now I can't remember. But it'll come back to me later. But Brittany, I think that it's a great pick for you to have put that in there, and it makes me inspired for my number eight because we're going to continue to be in the Alter Carbon realm, and I'm going to pick, um, and I'm probably mispronouncing her name because it's been so long since I've actually seen the show, but uh, Raylan, who uh, is Takeshi's sister, because, as you know, Brittany, she turned out to be a bad Mama Jana, um in the oh, series. Yeah. So we have uh, Takeshi's sister, who fought alongside her, and we see, obviously, they had a uh, traumatic upbringing. Their mother was killed. Their father was an utter abusive asshole. Um, They both essentially join um, uh, Quill. Oh, my God. What was her name? Quillcrest, right? Quillcrest? Was that the Takeshi's lover's name? That's what... I'm I'm pretty sure you're right. I'm pretty sure, but my my brain may um may lead me. But she she was not the most pleasant of a, of individuals either. Well, I'll save my opinion for her for her for another time. But they um you know ended up joining her right, and you know whatever whatever things. Ha- oh, Quillcrest. Okay, that's really her name. Sorry. Anyway. Um, so they end up joining her and her mission against pretty much the powers that have now taken over the universe, the ones who have even implemented sleeves and all that to begin with. And at some point you think that both Quilcrest and Raylan have died because they were in like a um, pretty much a plane crash or explosion, right? Well, again, spoiler alert, you find out that um, not only did Raylan purposely do that because she couldn't stand Fulcris and she didn't like the mission that she was on, so she not only killed Takeshi's lover, but also uh, made a copy of her or a backup of her own mind so that she could then become regenerated, became rich, uh, ran a brothel where girls, um, were pretty much starring, not starring, pretty much were prostitutes, but ones that you could kill because they thought that they're, um, they would just pretty much come back into another sleeve. But um, Raylan had it where a code was put into their disc that made it so they wouldn't be revived. So pretty much they couldn't you know, they couldn't vouch for what happened to them. It was so messed up. I mean, she was pretty much like the top dog of this, like, huge, like, criminal uh, enterprise. I mean, she was behind so much of what actually happened in the first season. And we had some, and she tried to kill Ortega. I think she may have tried, um, she may have succeeded. I forget now. But, I mean, we had some pretty 
badass fight scenes between uh, not only Ortega and Raylan, where Raylan was literally fighting naked, but then that, like, epic uh, fight scene between Raylan and Takeshi at the end of the season. So, I mean, it's crazy that this, it was very unassuming because she didn't come in until maybe the middle of the season. And obviously this is Takeshi's sister. And I just remember that one scene where it's like Takeshi's putting two and two together that his sister killed the love of his life. And he's like, I loved her. And his sister's like, I know you did. But <laughs> too bad, too bad, so sad. <laughs> so um, yeah, I definitely have to put her because she ended up being one bad mother ever. And what were your opinions of Raylan? Which I'm probably mispronouncing her name, but what were your opinions of her in the first season of Alter Carbon? I agree. You know, she follows the trend of. Why is it every time there's, like, a bad villain that is a sister to the hero, they almost give off, like, incest vibes, where they almost get, like, obsessive with their brother, where they're yes. like, oh, you know, I don't... Yeah, that that seems like such a trend, which I'm all here for, like, a messed up situation that adds a couple new layers to the situation. But that whole entire time we were watching, I was like... Okay, she's she's a little messed up. Does she maybe is she jealous in the way that you know? And is it because she was abused? You know, they had that situation. But I was like, man, this is a little um, a little much for me. <laughs> but uh, no, I agree. I think it's definitely interesting when the villain is the sister because you never see it coming, and then you realize, especially with those girls that think, oh, yeah, I'm fine making a lot of money and, you know, getting a new sleeve after I die, you know, within the prostitution ring. That is a mess. It's very evil genius because these girls are never going to be able to speak. You know, you don't have to spend the money to replace their sleeves. It's very um, very evil genius, very messed up. But Takeshi has his hands full. I feel like his whole family situation was just screwed from the get-go. I think this is a great pick. I'm glad I could inspire it with that with the Demi twins. Well, and you're right. Um, his sister very much was um, no woman will love you as much as I love you. You know, we've been, uh, it's just been the two of us for so long, and you pretty much try to bring someone else into the fold. And it's like, dude, you're his sister, um, it doesn't matter, you know, the different type of sleeves that you're in. Your guys are still brother and sister. This is weird. <laughs> but, yeah, um, yeah no, they were very interesting, their dynamic. And the fact that in, in Takeshi, it's like he essentially had to pick between his sister and the memory almost of his lover who – we even see at some point, I believe it's in the first episode, Quillcrest in his mind telling him to move on, and he's like, no, never. So, you know, to find out that his sister is the one who killed her, I mean, that definitely put him between a rock and a hard place. And she just played that role, like, really well. It's, I don't know if she's coming back or not for the second season, but it would have been really cool if she came back for the second season, especially since we're going to have Anthony Mackie uh, as the role of Takeshi for season two. 
And I think it is interesting, you know, Alter Carbon does leave it open for whenever you can upload your mind, and they've basically done away that with the idea that once the body is dead, you know, the villain's just dead. And we saw that with Demi, where you're like, oh, yeah, he's good. No, he just got re-uploaded, and he kept messing with them again. And with the thought of, like, uh, Raylan's mind being uploaded, you know, the satellites be, you know, constantly being reloaded, is it not fair to assume that she could come back, anybody could come back, and that's absolutely terrifying? Well, I think even, you know, they had assumed that Quillcrest was dead, but then at the end of the season, it was essentially hinted that she could actually be alive. So that's, I think, going to be Takeshi's mission in the second season is trying to find Quilchrist. Whether she comes back in the same sleeve or a different sleeve, we'll have to just kind of wait to find out. But, yeah, um, as you know, this is a favorite show of mine. We put it as the number one in our top ten sci-fi shows of all time. So if you haven't watched All of Carbon, I know that we spoiled a lot there, but you should still watch it regardless because it's amazing. Um, thank you for inspiring me for that pick, Brittany. I am going to give you the number seven slot now. This one's like near and dear to me because even though um, it had its Netflix original, it started off as a book. And I really love Count Olaf. Have you ever watched a series of unfortunate events? No, I haven't. I'm sorry. You're not the only one who's told me to to watch this. Neil Patrick Harris did such a great job. So the whole point is, you know, you have the the Blair siblings who they they're orphans. They lose their parents. Well, they count Olaf as their assumed uncle, or I can't remember if it was uncle or cousin, but he ends up adopting them. But he's so abusive he's so bad but they're like oh this is your only surviving relative we're gonna go send you with them and you know they're very high class but he even though his name is Count Olaf he he tries to put on this air that oh he's rich and wealthy but he's wanting the siblings um like wealth he's wanting their fortune especially that was his reason for pretending that he is the relative and for most of the series I'm trying to remember because it's been so long since I've finished the books but everybody assumes that he killed the uh, parents to these children so that he could you know basically adopt them and get their wealth but he's so abusive to them he's so scary but you love to hate him he's so eccentric well after the first uh, episode or you know the first book you know, he even tries to marry the oldest sister, who's still technically a child, but I think she's like 16, and they're like, oh, well, you need a guardian's permission. He's like, well, technically, I'm her guardian, so I can sign it off for her to marry me so that he could get her wealth. It's really (laughs) messed up, because technically she's not old enough to have claim to it yet. All situations messed up, but as the books go on, he is the villain of, like, every book and episode where he basically disguises himself as a new person every time like uh i'm trying to think of the word for it uh in one of the books they're uh 
the, they go to a new quote-unquote relative because they're assuming all these people are related, which I don't remember if they all are actually related, or but they go through all these different guardians that end up taking these children in. And he always says that ends up having a crazy disguise and the children know it's him, but but nobody believes them. Nobody assumes. So it's basically them sorting uh Count Olaf every time. Like one time he's an assistant. One time he disguises himself as a woman, and they're like, "You're a very hideous woman." <laughs> but uh, <laughs> he's very sadistic, very evil, very like people end up all dead all the time because of him. But I think he's terrifying because he's so. You know, Neil Patrick Harris does such a great job of like playing him, and you're almost like, oh, he's goofy, and then you go, oh, he did something really messed up. You know, I forget you're not just a goofy villain. You're uh, you're actually very he's very uh, like a he's a very um, not funny Joker, if that makes sense. So. I know that you are not the only person who has told me that I need to watch a series of unfortunate events. Um, It's just hasn't been on my spectrum, but I've heard really great things of Neil Patrick Harris. And it's crazy the way you're describing it because when you, like for someone like me who's never seen the show, when you see, say, just the poster, and he has this prosthetic nose on, and he's, you know, balding, and he doesn't really look like Neil Patrick Harris at all, he looks quite comical, that you wouldn't necessarily take him seriously, but it's sounding like it's someone that you should probably take seriously. Oh, he he's just, even though you're like, I think what's most terrifying for the children is that they're so openly aware that it's him each time in that disguise that nobody believes them or nobody trusts it. And I think throughout the books, they just give up, like, trying to convince them, like, to convince the adults in it. Because the children are supposed to be so much smarter than the adults, basically. But, um... It's just a messed up situation, and he's so bad wants to be like an actor, you know, or you know, be in theater. But uh, he's an awful actor, and that's why people are like, oh, you know, the children like that's basically a big reason of wanting their wealth. And you're like, God, he's an awful actor, but somehow he's still in the disguise, being a good enough actor that none of the adults believe them. That's great. Oh, shoot. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, it sounds like, I I think I saw that it ran for three seasons. So, I mean, I think there's probably going to be people who would listen to this show and they're like, Tia, you got to watch a series of unfortunate events because believe me, I've heard it multiple times. So I think that definitely um, Count Olaf, is that what his name is? Yes, Count Count Olaf. He's awful. He's the worst. He sounds like the worst, Brittany, honestly. I thought you were going to say something. I was like, okay, let me, let me give, a, give a moment here. We just pretend like that was just our moment of silence. We, we, we took a reprieve. It's okay. We, it was therapeutic. Exactly, exactly. So, Brittany, great uh, choice there, Count Ola. So, 
since you said, you know, because obviously it was based on a book, which actually so was Altered Carbon, um, really. Um, so my number six is going to be kind of a stretch, um, but I'm going to explain why it still counts as, um, what's going to call it, it still counts as a Netflix original. So have you heard of the show You? I've heard you. I've heard you talk about it before. I remember because I was like, "Man, that's an interesting title for the book, or, or you know, for the show." But I can't remember exactly what you said. Okay, so you did premiere on Lifetime and then moved to Netflix, right? Um, yeah. Internationally, and it actually has now so, so even though it didn't originate as a Netflix original title the second season will move to be an official or Netflix original title so the first season did originally premiere on Lifetime but didn't necessarily get a whole lot of views until they decided to then release the whole thing on Netflix so it essentially uh it essentially got its life from Netflix and then now the second season will be entirely produced by Netflix. So I'm counting it as a Netflix original series because Lifetime just couldn't get the job done, apparently. Um, but <laughs> so my choice is the main villain, Joe, from You. And what makes him such a great villain is, first of all, there were people out there who literally were – um, like obsessed with Joe. If you go on uh, Twitter and Tumblr and shit, there are people who are like, oh my God, Joe is so dreamy and he's such a, you know, like great man and blah, blah, blah. And even the actor was like, no, he is obsessive, a stalker, um, killed people around uh, the main character Beth's life. And she's just that. So what makes him such a good villain was how unassuming he was. Us, the audience, we saw and we heard his thoughts and we knew what he was doing. But to so many people in the actual show, he was just, including Beck, he was just this charming young guy who was able to kind of really um, fit in wherever he was, I mean, he worked at a bookstore, and he was charming, he had friends, um, he made the main character feel special, he gets another girlfriend at some point in the series, and he's just, you know, this guy who on the outside looks like he's just this really caring man, and what I loved about the show You is that it pretty much was like an F.U. to Fifty Shades of Grey because it took everything that Fifty Shades of Grey tried to romanticize and showed you how absolutely dangerous that type of behavior was, because Joe bugged uh, Beth's phone, and he followed her around, and he manipulated situations. He got rid of ex-boyfriends. He killed Beth's friends. He, you know, was trying so much to control this woman's life and make it seem as if he was doing it all for her. I mean, at some point in the show, he actually ends up kidnapping Beth 
because he's like, oh, I'm doing this for you. And he's sitting there legitimately like, I'm not a bad guy. I'm great. You know, I just care a lot. And it's like, no, you are a psychopath. And to me, what made him such a good villain is because, again, he he was like the Christian Grey, but showed you how much Christian Grey was an awful person. So that's why I loved the show You, and I loved the character Joe, because not only did that character show you how toxic and how bad that type of behavior was, but the actor like didn't even want people entertaining that his character was a good character. Like people were just again saying they're like, Oh, he's so dreamy, blah 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 and the actor was like, No, he's killed people. Like you should stop trying to romanticize Joe because he is not a good person and we showed you that this type of behavior is not cute, it's not romantic or anything like that. Him stalking Beck and looking at her text messages and seeing where she was going to be at every hour of the day is not healthy at all. Him trying to manipulate her friends to not be her friends anymore so that she only had time for him is not good behavior. So that's what I'm putting for number six. I know it's a little bit of a stretch, but it's going to be Joe from you. And I know, Brittany, that you've not seen it, but based on what I've told you or what maybe you've heard of the show, what do you think? It, like, is that a stretch for me to say that he's a villain, or does it make complete sense? Yeah, no, it makes complete sense, because I think it, it, people could be like, oh, you know, how are these women, you know, getting like this, where they're like, oh, he's so dreamy. <laughs> Uh, Charles Manson was getting fan mail and got married in prison. Uh, Ted Bundy, people romanticize, and I think it goes back to when people are like, oh, I can change them. You know, they're already obsessed with me and love me, so I can change them. Oh, I want something dominating. And it's like, no, they're abusive. That doesn't change because they already assume that they know better than you. That everything, and so for Joe from the show being Joe from the show, um, <laughs> being, being, I think it's a good uh, mouthpiece, and I feel like I use that word a lot, but to comment on how people can be, especially because we have these young women and uh, young girls that when they look at, say, Fifty Shades of Grey, I remember my own mother, even as being like, I can't remember how old I was. I was at least a young adult, which I still am, you know, by the time that book came out. And my mom was like, I don't want you reading this because I don't want you to assume this is what a relationship is. I don't, she didn't want me to romanticize it. So even, uh, you know, and she, she loved reading the books, but she knew that you had to look at it through pretending like that wasn't bad, like taking it for what it was. So when you have a character in a show where these girls are like, oh, yeah, he's great, and to even have an influence on people in the real world. Uh, and basically the character's so good that they're, they're even manipulating people in the real world of thinking, oh, they're great, they're wonderful, I'm not doing anything bad, I'm not a bad guy, which uh, – is most people that are good don't have to claim that they're good, that they're not yeah. a bad person. So, no, I think he's great because even though uh, 
you know, I do talk about Christian Grey, Grey, blah, 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 Christian Grey. Um, in this, I think it is a great parallel to him where you're basically getting to see that it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing to think that these people are great. Like, And we know, it's like, I love villains. I love, you know, and when we wrote, it's like, I love writing bad characters. But never for a minute do you sit there and go, oh, you know, I can change them. They're not a bad person. They're just misunderstood. No, at that point when they're murdering everyone around you, uh, I don't think that uh, these girls assume how truly bad this character is. Well, and the thing is, is that also I felt like the show was a commentary on how um, out there we are on our social media, right? Because this girl hanged where she was at all times, so he was able to see, you know, he he met her for all of five minutes, knew her name, and because of that, he was able to find out almost everything about her, where she lived where she went to school, what her interests were, everything, because we put everything out there on social media, and he was able to show up at the right place to make sure that he ran into her, and he was able to do all of that, and it was just crazy. Like, um, there's at some point where, believe me, um, Beck's uh, best friend was also equally insane, but... Joe looked at the best friend as a rival to Beck's affection. And even at some point, I read the first book, Fifty Shades of Grey, right? And there's at some point where the main character, Anastasia, or Anastasia, however you pronounce it, was somewhere with her mother, and Christian just showed up. And I remember thinking to myself, that's awfully, like, manipulative and obsessive that you can't even let this woman have a weekend with her mother that she hardly sees. And there's a scene in the show where Beck goes to see um, her father, who she has a very strained relationship with, and Joe shows up. And I was like, holy shit, if this isn't like supposed to be a freaking play-by-play commentary on Fifty Shades of Grey, I don't know what is. It's very much like um, for anybody that's seen uh, The Resident, you know, with uh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan and uh, I'm trying to remember the girl's name. I knew you were uh, going to work this in. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there's a, a part where uh, this the whole time you go through half of the movie, and I feel like, you know, I'm throwing this in even though we're talking about this, that, you know, we have – Everything where you think that Max is a great guy, he he's wonderful, you know, he does end up accident, accidentally showing up at her locations, or, you know, he's just so nice, but then it literally does a rewind of how he set up everything meticulously to be in the right place, how he, like, put up a, uh, like, like basically a resident needed for his apartment in the place that she worked, knowing that she needed a place to live. And it was like, you go, Oh yeah, it's great. Until you see like how calculated it was to um, basically trap the object of their affection. So to me, it's very much like that where it's like, Oh, you know, I have to set it up to basically be, I'm going to be, 
it's a school that song where it's like every uh turn you take I'll be there. Which, you know, if you really listen to that sting song, it's it's very obsessive. Um yes, and, it the is. Char- and the character Joe very much you know, he starts to deteriorate deteriorate throughout the season and again, spoiler alert, um, ends up killing Beth. Because it's one of those things that if I can't have you, no one can have you. So it's very toxic behavior, and I am here on my soapbox to say that any girl who's listening to this, and boy, any person who's listening to this, this is toxic behavior. And if this is the type of behavior that your uh, boyfriend or girlfriend is exhibiting, then go get out of it because they should never make you try to choose them over your friends or your family. So there's my speech for the day there. But, um, Brittany, before we go on to your next pick, I have to say the second giveaway for those who are listening, um, and it is PS4 Rock. So if you're listening, that is our second giveaway um, for our gift card. So make sure PS4 Rock and make sure you follow us on Twitter. But, Brittany, what is your number five pick? That's where it's like I'm looking there real quick because I'm like, oh, man, which one do I want? (laughs) I'm going to go ahead and, uh, oh, man. I'm going to go ahead and, what was that? I'm going to say that we can probably start moving into what we want to move into which is probably the Marvel shows. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and go with Kilgrave from Jessica Jones. Because in the mix of uh, obsessive, bad, abusive uh, boyfriends of the past, we have Kilgrave from Jessica Jones with uh, the power that anything he says you have to do, and it's very literal, uh, I was trying to think back how to explain this. Basically, Kilgrave becomes obsessed with Jessica Jones when he realizes what her powers are, that she's so strong, and basically uses his powers to force her into a relationship, which, you know, it makes, uh, they do go back that, you know, she was raped because he would talk to her to basically tell her to have sex with him. And it's not, it's against her will in every way you look at it. And she, oh, she ends up having trauma from that. But she, he is so in her head that, you know, she eventually breaks free of his powers, which is incredible and even makes him more obsessed with her. But there's even that part I remember where he tells Jessica's best friend, you know, slash sister to put a bullet in her brain or put a bullet in her head. And, that you you have to manipulate it to where Jessica puts the bullet in her mouth and going, okay, well, you put the bullet in your head. You're good. And it can break it, but it's just he's so utterly terrifying that any it's so literal, and they all do it with, like, a smile on their face, whether um, when he tells the kids to go into the closet and, you know, they use the bathroom on themselves because they've been there so long. Uh, because they don't have a choice, and it's scary because he still has to be in a certain radius for it to hold strength. 
but you know, he ends up having that one girl that has to have the abortion because he did that to her and he kept her like a pet and her brain was broken by the end of it. It goes into the more terrifying villains because we have our villains that are bad because, oh, they're bad, you know, drug dealer, arms dealer, you know, they're obsessed with the main character, but to have like a character that's so, I'm trying to think of the word for it, his total disregard for anybody else but himself is terrifying where they can make you do anything and they don't really care because we saw how he was with his own parents. So to me, he's pretty terrifying, even by Marvel standards. It, you know, that's why I like the Netflix Marvel series because in the movies, yeah, you have messed up things happen, but they keep it PG-13. But to have these kind of themes in a show where you go, oh, it's Marvel is very not child friendly, which I enjoy because you know D- DC does get the rep of being the more gritty, dark. But I think all the Netflix series got pretty dark when it came to Marvel. For some reason, it just reminded me of the scene in Deadpool two when um, Cable is like fighting the Deadpool, and Deadpool goes, it's "So dark. Are you sure you're not a DC film?" <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. You make me want to watch the second movie again. (laughs) But you are right. And, um, you know, the thing is that, like, that, God, that is why I hate these cancellations of the Marvel shows on Netflix because I don't know if we're going to get that dark of content from Marvel again. We might get it with the few shows that are plans to be released on Hulu, such as Ghost Rider and Hellstrom, but I certainly don't think we're going to be getting that on uh, Disney+, Plus. but that's neither here nor there. Kilgrave is one of the best villains, not only on Netflix, but in the Marvel world there, because he literally, for so long, was unbeatable. He was undefeated. You want to talk about a character who was completely controlling, and it was him. And I liked what you said that, you know, he didn't uh, take anyone else's feelings or mindset into regards. He was very selfish. Um, He only thought about him. I mean, he even said to Jessica at some point, oh, um, how do you think I feel? You know, I literally told someone one time to go screw themselves. Do you want to know what that looks like? And uh, he, you know, and it's like, oh, boo-hoo for you. So sorry that, you know, you have to live with these powers. But it's like you literally do no good with them at all. And you use them to manipulate people and have people feel as if they are trapped. And I don't know if you know this, but the girl who he was keeping as a pet is the girl who played Starlight in The Boys on Amazon Prime. Um, And she did a fantastic job in that role, just, you know, because we see Jessica and we see her, I believe it's been like maybe six months since she's gotten free of Kilgrave by the beginning of the series. And she's obviously not okay, but we see how the effects are right afterwards with the other girl, which I can't remember her name right now. But, yeah, I mean, Kilgrave was just, he was so diabolical because he was so, like, 
easy breezy about what he was doing to people. Um, he literally uh, made Malcolm a drug addict. He um, convinced Jerry's uh, wife to try to kill her. Um, everything he did with Jessica, uh, what they did with the cop, Will Simpson. I mean, everything was just um, completely, like, I'll never forget the scene where the one uh, guy who I guess he was tasked with maybe trailing Jessica, and you know that pretty much Kilgrave told him to fall on a pair of gardening shears, and that was horrific because these people were literally killing themselves and had no choice otherwise. And you're right, that scene with Trish, holy shit, because it was so quick, right? He was just leaving, and he was like, put a bullet in your brain. And she immediately just put the gun under her chin and pulled the trigger. Like, thank God it jammed or there was nothing in there. I forget what it was. But, I mean, that would have been the end of Trish because of that. And he was just so diabolical and he was so bad and I will admit this is terrible for me to say but I have not watched the third season of Jessica Jones yet um, I heard that actually it was really good but I think what the second season suffered from was not having Kilgrave around because he was just too good of a villain for Jessica to contend with because literally how do you contend how do you contend with someone who can just say something and you have to do it. Um, and it was crazy because then, you know, Jessica even begins a romance with Luke Cage and you find out that Jessica, because of Kilgrave, killed Luke's wife. And that's terrible. And Kilgrave tried to make Jessica, like, tried to pretty much not take any responsibility for it because if you remember, he goes, well, I just told you to take care of her. I didn't say kill her. And it's like, come on, Kilgrave. We know. Oh, it goes back to the manipulation. Like, the the twisting, the gaslighting. It is very messed up, I guess, in, in fewer words. But uh, it was his own mother or own father that he had them stick their hand in a blender as, like, a child. Um... The mother's face was burned, and I think he made her, like, put the iron, like, you know, when you iron clothes, I think he made her put it up against her face, and that's why her face is messed up. But there was at some point where he makes his father slowly stick his hands into a blender until um, he agrees to, like, tell him something or something like that. Um, But then, you know, he literally you know, forces this couple to hack each other to pieces. I mean, he was bad. He was really he, bad. He was, uh, he was very unhinged. And I know it was, like, disturbing for people that love David Tennant, where they were like, oh, he's so sweet and goofy. And they were like, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> and we were like, oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> because, honestly, even after all of the villains in Marvel Netflix, he was completely unforgettable. He was he was bad, like really bad. I mean, he used Luke Cage against Jessica. I don't know if you remember that part, but when yeah. Jessica thought that, that Luke Cage was reconciling with her and you find out that it was all Kilgrave's words flowing through Luke's mouth. It was oh, so bad. 
He's a bad mama jamma. He, 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 a bad, he a bad dude. I love it. I love that you put Kilgrave on here. He was certainly on my list as well. Oh, and no, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. I, I said we were going to probably have a lot of overlap, especially when it came to these Marvel villains. And I'm trying to, like, pick out, you know, who's going to say what pretty much. But um, a fantastic choice. We could probably go on and on about how great of a villain Kilgrave was. But we have four other slots to get through. So I'm going to pick number four. And I, of course... I'm going to pick another Marvel Netflix villain because we're just on that roll right now. Um, <laughs> and it's actually hard. I'm trying to figure out who I kind of want to put in this role because I don't know what you're going to pick for your number one. Um, but let's see. Okay. I am going to pick um, – it shouldn't even be a surprise for any – but I'm going to pick Billy Russo from the Punisher series. Oh, I knew. I knew, girl. I knew it was happening. I stayed away from that one on purpose. Well, that's the thing. I'm staying away from one on purpose for you because I feel like you're going to put him for your number one, but I'm just, like, mentally trying to, like, figure that out, like, communicate with you somehow. But um, anyway, Billy Russo. Whew. First of all, Ben Barnes. I mean, such a fantastic actor. And just, oh, I mean, we loved John Bernthal's Frank Castle, right? Since Daredevil season two. And were elated when we found out he was getting his own series. And, you know, based on the trailers and interviews and what we know from the comics, I mean, you had to have known that Billy was going to turn out to be a bad guy. But, you know, movies and TV shows do things different all the time, and maybe they would have kept him as just a friend, because he was never a friend in the comics, but that just made the hurt all the worse. I mean, (laughs) Billy Billy Russo in the first season of The Punisher was just sad. I mean, not only did we find out what he did with his mother, which was terrible. I mean, I know that she, like, gave him away as a child, but that was just, like, Sick, right? And we find out not only that, but not only did he know about the, the, I mean, that it all stems from that. This man, Billy Russo, is supposed to be best friends with Frank Castle, went to, you know, events of Frank Castle, knew his wife, knew his children. His children called him Uncle Billy. And he knew that Frank's family was going to get killed and did nothing about it. Yes, he didn't pull the trigger, but he didn't tell Frank. He didn't protest against it. He just said, I have all this money and fortune, and I'm not going to let anything get in the way, not even my best friends in the world. And holy shit, I mean, he killed Stein, um, and that death was really tragic. And he, you know, was still sleeping with Madani, not even, you know, telling her that he killed her partner and the fact that, you know, it looked like he was just really doing it at first, like sleeping with her for information. I mean, the whole shit was just crazy. For poor Frank Castle to experience that type of portrayal 
from someone who he thought was literally his brother and had his back was just like, I mean, the audience, we knew that it was coming, but it was crazy, the discovery of it, because Billy literally was going to be okay with shooting Frank in the head in that moment in the stairwell if it wasn't for Madani kind of standing, you know, standing down with him. So it has to be Billy Russo from the Punisher series, especially season one. He just was over the top. He It was, you know, manipulative. It was betrayal. And he just played that character so well. So it has to be that. I know, Brittany, that you love the Punisher series as well, so please tell me your thoughts on Billy Russo just being, like, one of the best villains. Punisher? I- I've never seen it. Oh, no, sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, Billy Russo was great. We need to talk about for a second, though, whenever he uh, he's like, did you do it, Billy? And he's like, no, because if uh, – he said something like, oh, you wouldn't oh, be alive or I wouldn't have missed. I'm like, well, technically no one missed. He had a bullet in his brain. <laughs> and he's, that's when he gets me with that one. I was like, um, I mean, the guy did what he was supposed to do. It was just that uh, Frank Castle die. was too badass to die. But, uh, <laughs> no, hey, I think he's a great villain. I think it's like where he's multifaceted, where he he's got the he okay he's got the pretty face, but he's also dangerous, but also he's sadistic. Like we go back to when um, Donnie, I think it was after her best friend, you know, well her partner got killed, and she's covered in blood, and you see her in the bathtub with all the blood getting washed off of her uh, from her partner. And you're sitting there, and then it pans out, and it's Billy Russo washing her with a sponge, oh. and it's all like, oh no, but you, but you don't know it at the time that he killed the partner, and he, I, I think it what's most terrifying. It's like, well, one, he did know, he knew that it's going to happen to them, and you have the flashbacks, which the flashbacks were powerful because you show how much the children loved him, how much the wife loved him. You know, even uh, Franco's like, you know, that was my brother. And uh, for him, where it's like all his family had been taken, and Frank felt like, man, that was like my only family besides uh, his other, I can't remember his name right now, the one that ran the group. Kurt. You know, yes, but like Frank didn't really have anyone. And to find out that his best friend let it all happen or, you know, it's, pretty tragic and Billy was everything we needed in a villain because I you know I feel like I go in a circle but it's like you do you don't expect him and you sat there you were like oh maybe he's not going to be bad or like the scene where he's like telling Frank he's like oh you know I can get you out of here you know you can start your Mm -hmm. own life and then you see he's with Agent Orange because it was almost set up in the first place you're like oh no he's bad Well, you know, just that scene where, you know, Frank is sitting there and he's all tied up and he's telling Billy, you know, my wife loves you, my kids love you, and Billy's just looking at him so stone-faced, you know, no emotion at all. I mean, Mm -hmm. not even regret 
And to me, it's like when he does say, you think I wanted this? I didn't want this. But it's all about him, 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 him. And he even is like, you know, Frank, you're just going to have to die. Like, this is what it is. Just let me do this for you. Like, and again, he almost, he like acts as if like he's doing him a favor. Like, let me kill you. Let me do this for you. And it's like, none of this had to have happened. None of this like had to have happened. Like a rabbit dog. And then, you know, and you find out that this shit, like, had, um, you know, extended in the past as far as Billy preventing Frank Castle from killing Agent Orange at first. You know, back in that flashback in the tent, and he, you know, because Billy even says to uh, Agent Orange, he's like, well, who pulled him off of you? You know, who pulled Frank off of you? You should be so lucky that you only lost an eye at that moment. Oh. That whole scene was pretty messed up, too. Uh, Frank Castle, uh, John Brenthal plays a very great, like, t- you know, as much as he loves pit bulls, and, you know, he's so great at training him, he's like a pit bull in on himself. Like, he's got the big <laughs> shoulders. Like, he he won big bad mamma jamma. <laughs> no, seriously, I mean, it's just like, and I keep going back to that scene with Billy and his mother. You know, when he's knowingly putting his mother through hell just because he can't let it go that his mother gave him up as a child. And because now he has the riches and he has the means to have tracked her down, he can keep her in this perpetual state of torture just because, you know, he feels like it. Um, so you know, that, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say real quick, is, you know, all things considered, he's so upset with her because, and I understand, you know, when he got gave up, he went through a lot of abuse. But when you think about it, you know, she was a drug addict that gave up her child. Could you not think that was like some kind of blessing where it's like, okay, I know I'm not getting any better instead of a mother that's like, oh, I'm going to use you to like get, um, money, you know, or get uh, benefits or claim you on taxes or, you know, abuse you. It's like, I think she did the best she could do as a drug addict of actually giving him up, but he just could not handle it. No, he couldn't. And he just used that, um, you know, against her. And, you know, yes, he went through the foster system, and that was terrible. But, dude, that is no excuse to keep your mother like that. That was terrible. But, um, yeah. yeah, Billy Russo definitely deserves to be on this list. Uh, we could probably talk forever about him, even in season two as well as the villain, but I know, Brittany, that you actually didn't see season two, so... I watched quite a bit of it, but I was also Mm -hmm. working a lot whenever it came out, and I was like, I have no time or effort or will right now. I am deaf. (laughs) But you know what? I think it's okay that we just keep it to season one, because I feel like Billy Russo is definitely in his prime at that point. But um, really quick before I go on, I will say that a lot of people were a little disappointed with Billy Russo's end at the end of season two, which I know this is a spoiler alert, and I've told you about this, Brittany, so um, Frank Castle killing him so quickly, and I'm like, I think that Frank Castle has to kill him so quickly. I think that, you know, throughout the whole season two, Curtis is telling him, 
and Madani's telling him, like, are you even able to do this? I mean, will you even be able to do this stability um, despite everything he's done to you? You know, I don't think that you'll be able to kill him. So I think that Frank needed to do it quickly because he knew that if he let Billy kept, you know, keep talking, that he wouldn't have gone through with it. So I understood that Frank was like, I just got to get this done. I just got to get it done and be over with it because if I let him live, if I let him keep talking, I'm going to let him live and we're just going to repeat this cycle just like I did when I let him live in at the end of season one, you know? No, I, I agree about having to do it quickly because when I put you out of your misery, when I was joking. But I, I tease. Silly's great for this was Definitely way on up there. Uh, Brittany, my mom's listening to this, so you keep talking. You're not going to get anything homemade when you come here in uh, October. Just saying. Okay, really quick on that subject. I still have never had another chicken parm that has been anywhere near like your mother's. And I sometimes, like, I used to, like, when I came back, I used to think about it randomly. Like, if I would do something <laughs> with chicken parm, I'd like, it was good. And she was also my first ex-Benedict. And so whenever I had it on the cruise and it wasn't as good as her, I was like, what is going on? Your mom puts, like, drugs in her food, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> It's just that, you know, New York Italian living, you know what I'm saying? But, um, <laughs> um, all right, let's move on. Uh, you got the number three slot. I'm interested to hear who you're going to pick. Well, it, it's funny because you are right on what my number one is going to be, but it's actually thanks to your mother for that because I didn't, I was torn between. But actually for my number three, it's not going to be a Marvel villain. It's going to be a, a little show called Orange is the New Black, and we can go with Porn Stash. Oh, my God. That was on my list, too. Not, not in the oh, bad way. No, 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 no. I was like, if Britney takes all these Marvel characters, I have backup. So that's hilarious. Keep going. Keep going. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, okay. Uh, quick backstory. I was, uh, I remember when Orange is the New Black first came out because it was my first time moving out from my parents. And we were setting up the house, getting everything moved in, got the internet hooked up. And I remember we just had the TV in there. We didn't have much, like just the bed in there and a couch and the TV. But we had the internet set up. And we put on Orange is the New Black. And I remember as we were setting up this house, we watched like, almost the full first season in a day of just trying to set everything up. And I remember thinking, oh, this ain't bad, until you had Mother Effin's porn stash come in. And I was like, oh, no, this dude is bad. And, and at first you, you sit there and you go, okay, he's a little goofy. But when you realize you have someone that can control your entire life in prison, and you can't do anything about it, and they can get away with it. They're manipulative, and they take all the power away from you. It is terrifying. And even, you know, he ended up letting that one girl overdose because he didn't want her outing that, you know, sexual favors, the drugs from her. He needed that to hush up, made her look like she hung herself. Uh, you also had uh, the part where he gropes Piper when he's searching her and it's like 
you're like, okay, you know, he's goofy and, you know, he's not scary and his name is Porn Stash. But when you realize that he is about as real as a true villain can get, you know, and they softened him up for later on with the child that, you know, that's obviously not his as we find out because of the whole situation with that. But for me, sometimes the scariest villains are the ones that we can relate with the most that are so easy to be something. Like, it, it would be terrifying for an individual to go to prison and go, man, there's going to be that guy that you – it's your word against theirs, and with the blue tape, that's uh, I'm never going to be able to get justice from that. So to have that villain where you're like, okay, that's great, that's wonderful. It's he's funny, but he's also very real, and I think that's what makes him the scariest. I completely agree, Brittany. Um, First of all, like, it is crazy to think that the guy who plays Stash on Orange is New Black, who everyone has such a visceral reaction to, ends up being, like, one of the, like, best actors out there, um, Pablo Shriver. Just, like, I remember, like, last year or so when it's, like, my morbid curiosity, like, came out where I was, like, what else has this guy done? And it's, like, it's insane because the transformation, you know, but... Um, Cindy and I used to watch Orange is the New Black all the time. Like, every time a new season came out, we'd, like, meet up with each other and watch, like, say, the first two episodes together, right? And he was, like, the big bad in the first season. I mean, because he, and as you said, his name's Cornstash. He's a complete and utter, like, douche, you know? Like, talking about, um, uh, is it Sophie or Sophia? Laverne Cox. Sophia, Sophia, I believe you're right. But, you know, he has that moment where he's talking about Sophia having, like, a cyborg pussy, you know? Like, just a complete, like, douche, you know? Like, and and everything else that he talks about, you know, and he pees in uh, one of Red's, like, meals, you know? Just complete and utter disgusting, right? And such a pig. But he is dangerous in the fact that like, yeah, he's a dork and shit like that. And you shouldn't, and at times you don't take him seriously, but then he shows that he has the power um, and that he can be like um, a really bad uh, part of your stay in prison. Like, as you said, with that one character that he <laughs> sorry, gives her the drugs that she overdoses on, and makes it seem like a um, a, a, a suicide, right? Yeah. And and he corners people, and he you know makes life you know he threatens Red because she doesn't want drugs going through her kitchen, but she better if she knows what's good for her, you know, because he's porn star, she's you know um, a corrections officer, and he has the power to do that. He can just say that you did something and you can get thrown into the shoe and you can get time added on your sentence and no one's going to believe you because he's a correction officer and that's terrifying. And you really is like this. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. My voice cracked in the middle of going to say that I'm going through puberty apparently. Jeez. (laughs) No, I was going to say you just reminded me of that scene. I can't remember her name. Um, The one that drives the truck. 
that scene oh, where he makes man, her drive her away. Mm-hmm. Oh, when he makes her drive away, and she's like, "Oh, you know, we're getting a little far," and he's like, "Oh, you know, you know, pull off here," and you're like, "Oh no." And he's just like, he doesn't end up doing anything to her, but the sheer intimidation of it, where you're like, okay, he's not so, um, he's not so funny anymore. Exactly. But it's funny, because I want to take this time really quick to talk about um, that it's kind of hilarious that someone like Porn Stash, right, who, I remember when he came back in season two, I was like, oh no, he's back you know he's gonna make like everyone's life a living hell again but it's almost like hilarious that they turned the tables and it was Bennett who ended up being like the douche of them all you know the the real father of Daya's baby because I know that you I know that you didn't see the end of Orange is the New Black I didn't really watch it I just skipped ahead uh, spoilers, I guess, for anyone who is uh, listening in and didn't watch it yet. But I don't know if you remember, Brittany, in the fifth season of Orange is the New Black, um, Foreign Stash pretty much convinces his mother to adopt Daya's baby. Because at yeah. this point, at this point, Bennett is on, you know, in the wind. You never see him again. Um, Daya's mother is not fit, and she has this weird, like, that daddy who she slept with at some point. I don't know what's going on with that, but um, Cornstash's mother agrees to adopt the kid. And in the final second of the finale of For Orange is the New Black, you see Cornstash playing with the daughter. Like, and they're just like playing like drums on pots and pans. Oh, that's really cute. What? I don't want to feel good for him, but it's like he ends up being like he he wants that kid so bad. He wants the baby, and he's like, and it's like the mom knows it's not his. And in a way, you know, I think in a way, Pornstash almost knows, but he doesn't care. He just wants the child. Well, and to me, what makes, like, villains so great isn't having them just as a a one-dimensional person. Because we see in season two, like, him, you know, drunkenly crying to Bennett that, you know, he has feelings and he's a person too and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, you don't want to feel bad for him because he's done some pretty horrific things. He's obviously, you know, forced women to do sexual favors to him and shit because I believe the girl who overdosed was giving him, like, blowjobs and yeah. everything. Um, for drugs. But, right, very much like the deep. Yeah, yes, yes, from the boys. But it shows, like, you know, that there is more to them, and this explains, like, the behavior. And I'm not saying you should feel bad for him. I'm just saying that it's great with villains when they do that. No, I agree. I very much agree. He He's just, uh, it, it kind of takes me back, you know, with certain college and people are like, oh, psychology. And they're like, oh, yeah, you have this guy that beats women. And they're like, oh, but, you know, he may have X, Y, or Z wrong with them. And I'm like, yeah, I get that. But I don't want to feel bad for them. It's very much like that with Cornstash. And it's just hilarious how they, like, 
turned his story around. And, in fact, Bennett was the one who ended up being, like, the douche of them all. And I know I keep saying that, but I was so mad. You know that Tyra Banks meme where it's like, we were rooting for you. We were all rooting for you. We were all rooting for you. I just watched that again the other day. (laughs) I'm glad that you brought that up. And I thought of that with Bennett. Um, I wish that one day we can do something where it's, like, uh, best TV villains of all time because Pablo Schreiber, uh, his porn stash has nothing on his William Lewis from Law and Order. SBA. Oh, I know. So, I was just thinking that. I was like, we need to do like a TV show. I, Tia knows I love villains. I will talk about villains all day long, every day. <laughs> He's, he plays such a good villain, too. So. Um, I love that you picked Porn Stash. That was totally in my list as well, and I'm so happy that you picked him because he deserved to be on this list. I have a few honorable mentions, but I'm going to hit the number two, and I am going to return to Marvel. It was between this and another character from uh, not a Marvel show, and I'll put him in my honorable mentions when we talk about that. But I have listen, we have this great list and only one woman on it so i gotta bring in like the most evil woman villain of them all and it has to be mariah stokes from luke cage (laughs) she's i know you said it but she won bad mama jamma she won bad mama jamma that's going to be the tagline of this uh, show, one bad mama jamma. Bad mama jamma. <laughs> you have in season one of Luke Cage, right? So it's obviously at first they set it up where you have Cottonmouth and you have Mariah and they're cousins. And obviously you're like, oh, Cottonmouth is the bad guy because he's the gangster, the lead of this criminal enterprise, and Mariah is like a councilwoman. But from, like, the beginning, you show that she's not a good person. Like, there's one scene in the first episode where she's, like, you know, doing a news report, and she's with these children, and she's cutting their hair and blah, blah, blah. And as soon as the camera's cut out and she walks away, she, like, asks her assistant for Purell because she's, like, oh, you know? And you have all of that kind of in the first season where she's pretty much okay with, um, you know, uh, not doing things so nicely. And we see, like, towards the end of the first season, her kind of integrating more into this criminal um, enterprise after she kills her cousin Cottonmouth, which was terrible, but he was kind of, like, provoking it by pretty much telling her that she wanted her uncle to molest her. So, you know... No. Oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah. That, that would maybe get someone killed. Exactly. But she slowly starts, you know, taking her place as this bad person um, with, you know, kind of threatening one girl to doing something um, or else she'll be killed, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it's in season two of Luke Cage that her villain role really shines. I mean, she's okay with taking blood money. She's okay with doing all these type of things. And we obviously see that. So in in the second season, I always say that Bushmaster 
is essentially another version of the Punisher because he comes in and he acts like he's, you know, you see him and you're like, oh, he's obviously the bad guy. But then you find out that he's really just getting revenge on what Mariah's family did to his family. And you're like, okay, well, what does that really have to do with Mariah, right? Because she's not responsible for what her, you know, uh, aunt or mother did. I forget if it was her mother or her aunt, but she's not responsible for that, right? She didn't yeah. decide to do it. But whew, Mariah gets her own hands bloody when she literally goes to Bushmaster's family's restaurant. Not only has everyone killed, but literally sets uh, Bushmaster's uncle on fire. I'm like, holy shit, you really crossed a line here. Yeah. I mean, she is bad. She manipulates her own daughter. She kills people. She is becoming uh, to the point where there is no longer that person in her who's trying to, you know, maintain the, like, good councilwoman-esque type of image. She is just full on in her villain role. I mean, and she pretty much like there's at some point in the series where she pretty much has all of these people in her own enterprise killed because, you know, this way they can't talk, right? So yeah. it's just like Mariah, I mean, and and I might be mispronouncing the actress's name. And I think it's like Alfre Woodard. I'm sorry for anyone who's listening who's like, that's not how you pronounce her name. But I am giving her so much praise because there were points that we, I was watching that show and I was watching it with Paulie. And even Paulie said he was like, you can, like, you gen, genuinely feel like she's this character. Like, there is none of it that is like, oh, it's an actor just acting. Like, it was so good and she was so bad. Um, and I love that they put her in that position. I just, she has to be number two here, Mariah Stokes. Um, and of course, I just loved Bushmaster always like Mariah Stokes. <laughs> we love Bushmaster. Um, I was going to say, she is terrifying. And I think what gets me is the more I think about villains is, you know, she's almost like the female Billy Russo. She was, you know, molested as a child. She uh, went through things because uh, she grew up poor, didn't she? Wasn't that a thing with her, too, because they're, like, in this bad area or, you know, it used to be bad? It's, she grew up in Harlem, and it's that her, gosh, I forget if it's her mother or her aunt. I think it was her mother. And uh, anyway, um, but her, that. I'm going to say mother for all intents purposes, right? Um, her mother yeah. was like, like pretty much the head of her own like street level like crime family. But uh, Mariah was like the whole point of it was there's at some point where like Cottonmouth goes, you know, I could have gone to Juilliard. I, you know, wanted to play piano, but I was forced to, you know, be on the streets while you were being sent to law school. Uh, it's like um, 
that's why I do find her like there's those character flaws like Billy where it's like okay you know she grew up with these people she grew up with like these girls that are in the same situation same neighborhood but to be like okay I need Purell it's like okay you obviously think that you're something so much better that you know you're above everyone uh, even though you came from the same place it's like she is very, I feel like she's a very narcissistic character. She's very evil, and, you know, she doesn't care about getting her hands dirty. You know, I remember watching Luke Cage, like, you know, I never got to finish finish it, but going, okay, Cottonmouth's the villain, and then you go, oh, no, 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 no. We have a way better villain, which I'm glad that you put, like, a female on the list because, well, another one, because we uh, both Marvel purposes but she is she's evil you know I would put her up with I would put her above Billy because yeah Billy you know with uh one family but Mariah's the type that doesn't care to kill a hundred families if it meant getting what she wanted well and that's exactly that's exactly what it is because there's at some point as I said in season two where like she literally has her assistant killed because it's like you know, she's kind of at that point where she needs to be untouchable. And if there are people out there who can talk, then she doesn't want them to even be able to talk. And the turning point really was when she decided to go into that restaurant and kill everyone who was in there, including Bushmaster's uncle, and literally just, like, set him on fire. And even Shade who himself was a criminal, looked at that in horror because even he was like, this is unnecessary. This is unnecessary violence. Um, And she was just willing to do all of that. And you're right, she did think of herself very much better than everyone else, even though she grew up in that same neighborhood. um, And her whole thing was that she wanted to preserve Harlem but she wanted to act like she was better than everyone else. And there's even scenes in, like, the first season where she had um, a news reporter come, and she wanted to, like, pretty much – she wanted to have this fake face on of who she was. And the reporter at some point was calling her out on it, and and then Mariah was like, okay, well, you need to go then. You need to go then because she couldn't have that sort of, you know, the, the truth because she was fake everything that she was putting out there was fake. And she even manipulates her daughter and shit like that in the second season. I mean, she was just all around a bad person. And she did it so well because how they presented her is that they really made it seem as if, you know, her cousin, Cottonmouth, was the bad person. And, yes, he was bad, you know. He was doing bad things as well. But... If anything, I feel like you felt more sympathy for him at some point because he was just a kid who didn't want to be involved in this and he just wanted to play piano and go to Juilliard and he couldn't do that because he had to stay and run the empire pretty much. That's why it gets to coming for Tia. Uh, But uh, (laughs) uh, 
That's why I get so excited whenever I come to visit and uh, we end up taking the – I never know whether to just call it the train, the subway, but when we go to New York City and we go through Harlem, I'm like, oh, it looks – because, you know, for me, being where I'm from, it's like – it looks just like the show. I'm like, you know, it's it's so neat how different each of the places are that you can literally take a train through them and feel like you're in a different area each time. It's like their own little states cities within cities it's like it's very wild and New York City is <laughs> just a whole different beast <laughs> well that was the great thing about the Luke Cage show is that it very much had its roots in Harlem and took care to show the you know the culture and the area of the you know of Harlem um, and to see that, like, there, it was very territorial because the whole thing in season two was Bushmaster was coming and he was like, I'm going to take over Harlem. Um, and it was very yeah. much like that. I mean, and that was what, like, the Marvel shows kind of were. You had these street-level heroes protecting their areas, you know, not all of New York City, just their areas. And they made sure to really just put the feel of where they're from in the show. So it was really cool. I mean, I I, I want to say that the number one villain on this list is Netflix for canceling them, but, you know. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Tia, Tia will never be over it. Like I said, um, and Tia, I'll be giving her eulogy one day, and being like, and she never got over the cancellation of the Netflix Marvel series. And and you would be fine with that. I feel like that would be like uh, that would be your last words. I will never be over it, especially. Well, first of all, the cancellation of all of them, but the fact that like Luke Cage and Iron Fist never got resolved, just bullshit. But anyway, let's. Um, wow, we have some fantastic villains on this list, and I can't wait for the number one, but let me go through the ones that we went, uh, that we named off already. Again, this is the top 10 best Netflix villains, and we have number 10, Papa from Stranger Things, number 9, the Demi Twins from Alter Carbon, number 8, Raylan from Alter Carbon, Number seven, Count Olaf from the series of Unfortunate Events. We have number six, Joe from You. Number five is Kilgrave from Jessica Jones. Number four is Billy Russo from The Punisher. Number three is Porn Stash from Orange is New Black. Number two is Mariah from Luke Cage. And Brittany, you have the number one slot. I was going to say, I'm so happy about it because, uh, you know, Tia's mom was sitting there and said about this character, and I went, oh, my God, why didn't I think of him? He has to be number one, the one that started it all with the villains for the Netflix Marvels. It's going to be Wilson Fisk, and especially because he is such, like, a brute, raw force that he's so educated, so classy that uh, I think you were the one telling me where I, I remember just hearing about him, and I was like, oh, it can't be that terrifying. But, like, when he gets interrupted at his dinner and, you know, with the uh, the Russians and they're asking him questions and the one brother of the Russians like, oh, you know, don't don't do it. 
and basically later on him just raging out and destroying that man's head between the car door and the door and the car <laughs> itself. When you told me about that, I was like, oh no, it, you know, it can't be that brutal. Maybe it's just like one close. You're and you're like, oh no, I mean, it's overkill. At that point, he's already very dead. You can <laughs> stop now. But uh, he was great because you know, the whole time he's like the um even his uh, assistants like oh my employer like nobody wants to say Wilson Fisk's name nobody no wants his wrath it, it, it's very like Voldemort from Harry Potter where it's like he who must not be named <laughs> but you know for the first bit he's just the man in the shadow you know and with Daredevil being the first one because I am right, right? It, it was Daredevil yeah. that came out first. So I want to be confused here. It kicked here. it all off. It kicked it all off. It, he was like the Iron Man of the TV shit series. <laughs> but, uh, no, he um, he was just incredibly – he was multi – he had so many layers where he wasn't just – some oh you know he's some brute force it's like he's classy I love the part where he's making the omelet and he's very particular everything has to be adjusted right the sprinkle of like the the green onions it's like it he's but when he rages out he's so incredibly terrifying and to have him so educated and smart enough that you go man it, you know even when he lost everything you know in the parts where he's in prison. And you think, oh, you know, he's running out of money. It's like he's always thinking. He's always manipulating. He, You know, he's the type of man that if he lost everything and you dropped him off somewhere, he could restart and be at full power in like a few years. And it's just he's incredible, but he's also very terrifying. So, yeah, um, he's going to be my number one. When I thought about this list, I was like, no one else can be in that number one slot except Wilson Fisk um, because Vincent D'Onofrio did such a beautiful job in constructing this character. As you said, in the first season, he was very much the man behind the shadows. Um, no one could say his name. You know, we had one guy in the first season literally kill himself after he gave Daredevil his name because he's like, now they're going to know. And uh, it's I'd rather kill myself now than deal with it later, pretty much. And we just saw that he was able to make almost everyone disappear, you know, that he wanted to. He was able to manipulate the situation. Um, and he's very much the big bad. He's very much the powerful brute force, you know, that shifts everything for other people to take the blame. Um, I mean, that's how we even meet Karen, because she's being blamed for someone's death, um, because if they can get rid of her, then they can get rid of the controversy that was even that whole situation to begin with. But then we have these moments where it's almost like humane, and him with Vanessa, and how much he loved Vanessa, and how much um, he loved Wesley. I mean, how utterly, you know, sad he was at Wesley's death, how he loved Vanessa and wanted to do anything for her to make sure that she was okay. And just, and then we get in season two. I mean, he's only there for what, two episodes? 
but even that, the way he was able to construct everything, the way he was able to move the pieces. I mean, he got Frank Castle to go into jail so that he could talk to him, so that he could get Frank Castle to take out his enemy. And then he almost got Frank Castle taken out, um, which, you know, just Wilson Fisk just didn't realize that he was up against Frank Castle. Um, (laughs) But then the third season to me is where Wilson Fisk really shined. I mean, again, you have all that throughout the series, but just him able to everything that we saw in season three was part of Wilson Fisk's plan, him getting hurt in prison, him getting house arrest, him, you know, manipulating the, the cop, the feds, the this, the that. It was all to benefit his freaking self. I mean, it was insane to almost watch. It was like an orchestra. And I know that's like getting so dramatic about this, but that's how good of an actor Vincent D'Onofrio was because you would not have been able to do that without him. And I remember I actually talked with Jay Ali, who plays Nadim, um, and he said that it was absolutely fantastic working with Vincent D'Onofrio because of just how good he was. Um, and there were times that I literally thought that Wilson Fisk was going to get you know, was going to be able to get out on top because he literally got his hands in everything, even the guy who, um, you know, Melvin, who did Daredevil's costume, um, you know, he was able to manipulate the feds, everything. It was just insane. And I will not forget that the best fucking scene, in se- and yes, I'm cursing about this, the best fucking scene <laughs> in season three was freaking Karen. Karen Mother effing Paige, Frank Castle would be so happy and so proud that his baby was able to stare down Wilson Fisk and tell him, I shot Wesley. And I was like, yes, yes. Oh. I mean, I was terrified for Karen because as soon as Wilson Fisk stood up, I was like, oh, man, she's in trouble. Oh, really? she's, in, she's in so much trouble right now. Run. No, I'm trying to think because you reminded me of something with Wilson Fisk that that got me about him about how utterly terrifying he is and how how good he is at manipulate. Oh no, I was gonna say, and what's crazy is you would think he's his, his what he's wanting is almost right in a way. You know, he's wanting to make Hill's Kitchen a better place. He's wanting it to be good. You know, of course, there is his own selfish reasons, but still, you know, his big part is he's like, oh, I love this place. I want it to be great. I want it to be successful. I want to do this and that for it. But it's like, dude, you killed, like, an old lady at some point. You killed that old lady in the first season. And I'm like, come on. Especially as much as a mama's boy he is, I'm like, bruh. Mm-hmm. Right? That was he, someone's mama, and you killed That her. was someone's mama. That's, that's a very depressing thought. Right? But it was just crazy. Like, um, the whole entire thing was just so well done, and how he was able to almost, because, you know, um, freaking Bullseye was in the third season, who was pretty much like an unleashed like dog and Wilson Fisk was able to like manipulate him and control him by giving him what Bullseye really wanted and that was a mission that was adoration and all of that and he's just so good 
You're so good. You know what's crazy is the other day I finally sat down and watched Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which is a really good animated movie for anyone sitting there wanting to watch it. It actually is on Netflix. And Wilson Fisk is the main villain of that. And I thought to myself, I would love to see this played out in a live-action capacity with Vincent D'Onofrio and um, freaking Tom Holland as Spider-Man and whomever they wanted to get, per se, to play Miles Morales. Um, it would be awesome. I don't know if you've seen it, Brittany. It's actually a really good movie. I would definitely suggest uh, sitting down and watching Into the Spider-Verse. But um, even that, Wilson Fisk was good in it. It wasn't even voiced by Vincent D'Onofrio or anything. <laughs> it was just Wilson Fisk. <laughs> but, you, you know, it's just such a good villain. I need to watch if simply for as much as I love Spider-Man. You know I love me some Spider-Gwen, and I need she to watch for it. just her. She was great in it. She was definitely one of the main, like, the, you know, they introduced a bunch of different, like, quote-unquote Spider-Men, um, but the main ones is Miles Morales, Peter Parker, and Gwen Stacy, and they're really good in it. And it also plays on the whole, like, Wilson Smith, what, wow, Wilson Fisk. Oh, Wilson Fisk. <laughs> I know, gosh. Will um, Smith. Oh, my God. Uh, but, you know, him wanting to do anything for Vanessa, um, because it was all about that. It was all about Vanessa. So I'm so glad that you put Wilson Fisk down as the number one. I still think that he is utterly the best freaking villain, like, of all time on, like, the Netflix Marvel shows. And pretty much one of the best villains in the Marvel universe in general, because let's be honest, a lot of them are very forgettable, you know, movies and TV show alike. Oh, I know. There, there's some that I was like, you know, I love the villains, but then there's uh, other ones I hear about that I'm like, ah, yeah, they were good. They were all right. But they got <laughs> nothing on these 10. Exactly. So we did an amazing job breaking down the top 10 best villains in the Netflix original series. We have a little time left. So did you have any honorable mentions that you want to throw out that you didn't get to talk about on the actual list? Well, it, it's a small one just because I really enjoyed him, but I, I don't remember. Have you seen Bird Box? No, I haven't. You know, I haven't. I'm sorry. Uh, no, no, it's okay. There's a guy named Gary who, you know, he's only in it for a little bit, but he is the reason that uh, Olympia, you know, the, you know, how the whole thing of Bird Box is that there's two children, and the daughter actually belongs to one of them. Well, he's the one that rips, um, you know, paper, the newspapers and every or the blinds off the windows so that, you know, they'll kill themselves because he's one of the people not affected. But, yeah, Gary was terrifying. He's the reason why a lot of people died, and he's the reason that the mother of the daughter of the girl in it is dead. So I was like, okay, you know, because you have this unseen force, but there wasn't many that you got to know for a second in that, like a villain, even though there was bad guys in it and people affected by, you know, being one of the ones that they don't instantly kill themselves from these creatures, but he still is, like, the main catalyst for um, for one of the main guys dying, you know, one of the main women dying. You're like, oh, okay, this is awful. Great. Wonderful. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
and, and that's a great villain as well because it's like shit, man. Like, why you want everyone to kill themselves? <laughs> <laughs> I have a few um, honorable mentions, so I'll go through them quickly. Um, Madame Gao from uh, the Marvel. Uh, Netflix universe. I mean, she was in Daredevil, oh, yeah. Iron Fist, The Defender. She was such an unassuming, but also just like Mariah and Wilson, uh, very calculating, which is, you know, what you really want in a strong villain. And I also oh, yeah. did, I did want Cottonmouth on there as well, because he was, you know, set everything off. I thought he made the first half of Luke Cage really good. Um, I, because Recently, I watched Wu Assassin, so I'm going to put Alec McCullough. Yes, I, I thought you were going to put him on the list at oh, first. And then, no, 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 it's not bad. I was just like, oh, you know, I, I could totally see that. My brain almost wanted to put the Punisher on this list because he technically <laughs> was a villain at first in season two. I mean, he did shoot uh, a Murdoch in the head. Right, right. I mean, that was pretty villainous. And the Punisher was <laughs> the Punisher was originally introduced in a Spider-Man comic as the villain, and then turned into an anti-hero. But um, I wanted to book Alex McCullough from Wu Assassins, and then also, and I know this is like not, you know, people are gonna be like, well, that's a real life person. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, Pablo Escobar from yes. Narcos. Because yes, I know yes, he was yes, a villain yes. in real. I know he was a villain in real life, but the actor who played this specific, uh, specific version of him in Netflix's Narcos was fabulous, fantastic, like such a standout. I think that is what the third season of Narcos lacked was him as Pablo Escobar because he was so freaking good in that role. I mean, holy shit! But. That's those are my few honorable mentions. I know I was almost gonna put Alex McCullough on the actual list because I was like, you know, still so fresh from watching Wu Assassins, which is another show that people should definitely check out. Um, you know, it had its flaws. I think that it could have done without like the mysticism, but it feels. I really wonder if they got some people from the Marvel shows because it feels just like, say, Iron Fist or Daredevil, and the fight scenes are just, like, rival to none. They're so good in it. Um, So, you know, you're missing, you know, Daredevil, and you're missing Iron Fist, and you're missing great fight scenes, great action scenes. It's only 10 episodes, Blue Assassin, definitely something to check out. And that guy, Alec McCullough, comes in, like, in the middle of the series. He's really good. I forget... The, I think it's Tommy Flanagan. Flanagan is the name. The Irish dude with the scar on his face that like is in oh, everything. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he was playing, you, you go, oh Irish guy with scar on his face. Yeah, we all know instantly. He, he is like the uh, oh, who's that one actor that always plays a bad guy and it's like become like a funny thing now because he only plays villains and he's like, I just don't have the face for a hero, apparently. Oh, give me an example of what he's been in. I'm trying to think because it's not something I've seen a lot. I, it's just always a joke on Reddit where they're like, oh, there he is as a villain again. And like, I literally looked at his filmography one time and it, like, I don't remember what he played in anything, but they're like, oh, he's a villain in everything. 
Oh, that's going to bother me. You need oh, to find out. I'll look it up later. I'll, I'll find it. Before we wrap everything up, my mom is, like, texting me going, the Gordy Weaver from The Defenders. I'm sorry to tell you, Mom, I did not think she was a good villain. She was bland and boring and Your a mom's very... Your murder you. You're not going to get any a, of her eggplant and, farm. And a very poor use of Sigourney Weaver. No shade on Sigourney Weaver. She's fabulous. It was how they wrote her. That whole Defenders show wasn't good. But anyway, Brittany, <laughs> we did the top ten best Netflix villains. Um, if you need a moment to plug yourself, please let us know where we can find you. Going to say you can find me at Brittany underscore Hegel at either Instagram or Twitter. I should be, uh, I'm not sure exactly what I'll be doing exactly, but I am going to Arkansas Comic Con next weekend. So if I find anything cool, instra- interesting, but I take pictures, you can follow me there to see what's going on. Ric Flair is going to be there, which always makes me giggle. Um, then we got New York Comic Con coming up in October. So stay tuned and you'll get a like last time I got to take a lot of pictures of even Decime uh, and their uh, Marvel collaboration with Agent Carter, which was cool. So it's a little bit of everything going on. So you can find me there. Absolutely. And everyone, please make sure that you like us on Twitter um, and all that good stuff. Check out Geek Vibes Live that's coming to you this afternoon. And again, thanks everyone. Make sure you check us out Twitter, Instagram, Geek Vibes Nation. I'm Tia Baby. This is Brittany Heagle, and it's been fun. See ya. Have a great night or great day because it's not nighttime yet. <laughs> have a great day. <laughs> Bye.